So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Canadaland Commons is brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, Wealth Simple. If you are a listener of this podcast, you can get your first $10,000 managed for free for two years just by visiting wealthsimple.com slash commons. Go check it out. Take a look. Even if you have 20 bucks to put away, it's a start. I'm Ashley Chinati. I'm Hadia Rodri. And I'm Ryan McMahon. Ontario wants to give you free money. West Coast and East Coast Liberals want your vote. And for-profit blood stores want to pay you for your plasma. You don't have to vote for us. That's why we live in a democracy. From Canada Land, this is Commons. I'm pleased to announce the details of Ontario's basic income pilot that we'll be launching here in the Hamilton area and in two other Ontario communities, Lindsay and the Thunder Bay area. It's a great thing. Starting this summer, 4,000 randomly chosen Ontarians will get paid for being poor, whether or not they work. Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne announced a pilot project to test out whether guaranteeing a minimum basic income would improve the lives of the poor. We want to find out whether a basic income makes a positive difference in people's lives, whether this new approach gives them the ability to begin to achieve their potential. I'm here with some bad good news for you guys today because something that has been called for on the left for a very long time is finally getting a serious pilot project in Ontario. And I'm talking about basic income. Now, the thing about basic income is a lot of people think it just means the government sending everybody in an area a set check or tax credit every month and that supplements their income. And that's what's known as universal basic income. And that's what a lot of people think that basic income or mincome is. But there are actually a ton of different forms. And the pilot Ontario is doing is far less substantial than just mailing everybody in an area a check. And... I think that a lot of people want that version to happen, that like everybody getting a check. There's a lot of countries looking at this. Kenya's doing a pilot. There's one in California. It's something jurisdictions around the world are looking at. And it's sort of on vogue again for the second time. Last time this was big in Canada in the 1970s, there was an experiment in Dauphin, Manitoba, as well as in select parts of Winnipeg. And then that sort of just went away 
and fell out of fashion for a while. Some people dug up the data again last a couple years ago, and it really started being this conversation again in academic and social policy and economic circles. I'd say over the past five to 10 years that like maybe we should take another look at basic income. So Ontario is. Man, so many questions. Um, (laughs) How is this being paid for? And is this a win for win (laughs) in terms of raising the popularity and kicking around this idea in the province that has a lot to say about Kathleen Wynne recently? So the Pilot program is only going to add its max cover 4,000 people. So it's only going to cost $50 million a year. $50 million a year sounds a lot to you or I, but Ontario has a budget where its expenditures are over $140 billion a year. So this is a drop in the bucket. So those 4,000 people will be taken from three community areas, the Hamilton, Brantford, Brant area in southwestern Ontario, Lindsay, which is sort of like mid Ontario, and then Thunder Bay in the north. And then they're working on developing a specific First Nations pilot in a remote community, but they haven't set terms for that yet. So $50 million a year for three years, and they're going to study about 4,000 people choosing a third-party company to collect and do all the data. So what's that $50 million going to buy? A single individual who gets into this program will get just under $17,000 a year. It will be just over 1,415 bucks a month, which is essentially double what the current singles rate is for Ontario Works, the welfare program for people who aren't disabled. And if you are disabled, you get an extra six grand a year, which brings it closer to what the current system would be for a disabled person anyway. Big difference between this and existing welfare is you get to keep a little bit more of your income. So it serves as a top up for people who are, say, minimum wage earners who might not qualify for the current welfare system. As far as the politics of it, this is something Wynn has been toying with for a couple of years. They first announced the pilot in last year's budget, funded it in this year's budget. It's one of those things where the Ontario Liberals have done a very good job at outflanking the Ontario New Democrats on the left. And we saw that again in this budget where they announced pharmacare free drugs, prescription drugs, for everybody under the age of 25 in Ontario starting in January of next year. So how did it work out before? The town has about 10,000 people and 1,000 people receive these payments. um, And it wasn't based on income like it will be in this one. So you did have some income clawback. I think that's one of the big misconceptions about it. There's a lot of misconceptions about that pilot. I think people think that it turned into the shiny little utopia for a few years in the 1970s and it didn't, especially because the the take-up rate was so low. A lot of the data sort of disappeared for a bit. It uh, was, was resurrected at various times for other studies and there's conflicting evidence as to how much it may or may not have affected healthcare costs, which tend to be one of the biggest arguments in favor of a basic income of some kind across the country is that health incomes improve when people have more money because they're less stressed, they eat better, they tend to have more time to exercise, and it just becomes a healthier society, which could save us money from Medicare. But to say Dauphine was this raging success is actually a bit of a misconception. I mean, it wasn't a raging success, but it did provide some stability. That's, I think, one of the things they found is that protecting you from a lot of people live sort of paycheck to paycheck. And so it was a buffer that if in case you found yourself um, with a sudden illness or a disability that's not covered or some sort of, you know, unpredicted economic event, 
so just having that buffer and that safety net, which a lot of people these days don't have anymore. Um, and I think hospitalizations did go down, according to the reporting in The Guardian, as did injuries and mental health issues. And Ryan, you're from Manitoba. Like, how was that project viewed there? I don't know anybody that went through the program. I'm not originally from here. I've I have heard people talk about it, and it's it's come up in political conversations uh, here and there uh, provincially. And I think the NDP has done such a who how do I say they've had such a terrible run in Manitoba over the last 17 years, hence the conservative government here now, that I think we're a long way away from people considering a program like this in the province. I think one thing that's kind of uh, lost in the conversation, though, that I don't hear a lot over the last uh, week or so around this issue is how it actually is like a really decent thing to do. Like it's a, it takes away the stigma of welfare and uh, the shame that gets attached to people. And so when, you know, when you are, when you are going for a job interview or expressing to a new potential employer that in fact, you know, you are on welfare, there's a certain stigma that's attached to that. And I think, you know, what we could do as a country to do away with those types of attachments that get made to people, I think it's a good thing. And I think that's one thing that allows us to get into a bit about how this program is going to work is what makes it instead of just boosted social assistance, right? Because you could make the argument that this is just like, let's just give people more money social assistance wise, is that they're running this as a tax credit system. So that means that you would be entitled to this money until you're not. So what I mean by that is, if you are a single adult entitled to that just under $17,000 a year, for every dollar you make, 50 cents comes off of what you get a year. So if you make 10 grand, then you're going to get just under 12 grand in support earn your 10 grand and then have just under 22 grand a year to live on. But because it's rebated back to you, theoretically, what basic income, if it was available to everyone, would do would be eliminate all the people who say yes or no to people who get Ontario Works, which is our welfare program here now. There would still be people to have to screen for who qualifies for the disability supplement, but presumably that's already happening for in another department. And if you run it as a tax credit system, you'd actually be a little bit more efficient in your distribution of the support as well. And I I think with precarious employment, you know, especially in this country now where we are so married to this resource extraction economy and that that creates uncertainty with employment and short-term projects and otherwise, uh, that we see these these investments of these projects get lauded, and then uh, you don't read the fine print, and and once the pipeline is built or the mine is uh, is complete, four years after it opens, there are no jobs. So that precarious employment piece is important, and I don't know. To me, with stability and when you are assured that there is an income coming, there's a bit of a I mean, the weight is li- lifted off your shoulders. I can speak as an artist who who still has to hustle and, and having that security lifts a weight off your shoulder. And I think you're rewarded in life a lot differently when you have that freedom. You can imagine, you can dream, you could think about a small business that you can build. You can kind of break away from the monotony of this insecure system that you have to live and survive in. And so 
what are our thoughts on you know the possibilities of this driving small business or or economic development in communities where like-minded groups of people with that security can come together and say hey i've got an idea i imagine that being a, a, a sort of an offshoot that we can't really measure right now but uh it's one that i i can imagine i don't think it's limited to just the resource extraction economy as well like i see people my age and a bit younger living in Toronto or living in other big cities where they are working paycheck to paycheck. They're only getting these short contracts. No one's getting permanent jobs anymore. You know, there was a large precarious work report that I I read a couple of years ago, and I think it would help those people as well. And I think we have a lot of young people with an entrepreneurial spirit who could be served into being more creative and coming up with more creative Uh, work opportunities and companies if they had sort of this fallback. And it's not that much money that we're talking about here either. Like, it's a lot of money to implement. But I mean, for someone to live on, I had someone I was out reporting a story in rural Ontario. And I had someone be like, and now we have this announcement from Himriya Wen, who's, you know, high hydro rates and their usual complaints, saying, why are we going to give people free money? You don't give me free money. I work hard. That usual... But we're talking about 75% of what we consider the low-income threshold in this province. So it's just under $17,000. The low-income threshold is over $22,000 a year. And, like, we aren't even meeting that. We aren't even going up to the low-income threshold. Like, to be quite frank, if we were to do basic income in a very serious way as a universal basic income I think it should be at the, I don't think it should be 75%. I think it should be at the poverty line. But even Hugh Siegel said in his report to do 75% of that threshold, there must be some policy rationale for that other than it being cheaper. But I really think if this is the point is to bring everybody up to a level where we live decently and are a better society is it should start at the basement and move up, not dig down deeper. So welcome to our super fun segment, Is This a Thing?, where we talk about things that might be things and determine whether they're things. So far, most things have been things. And this week, we got to Is This a Things from listeners, which is super exciting. If you have uh, Is This a Thing that you want to send our way, send it to email, commons at canadalandshow.com. So our first Is This a Thing, Kevin O'Leary is gone! Will he rise again? He has dropped out of the leadership race and has thrown his support behind Maxime Bernier. I mean, of course, this is a thing because he was a perceived front runner. He's out of the Conservative Party leadership race. Regardless of what you think of him, it's big news that he's out and backing Bernier, which really puts Bernier pretty far out in front as far as contenders go. But as we've discussed before, the wonky voting system, that might actually hurt him more than help him. Why does it put him out in front? Like, why is Kevin O'Leary's support going to be helpful for Bernier? That's actually something like pollsters will debate is how many of O'Leary's people will go to Bernier. But I think as a perceived pro-business candidate, like let's say he even got a third of O'Leary's supporters. Bernier was already among the front runners to pick up any more support at this point in time, I think is good for momentum. Um, Although there could be a downside for anyone who is a never O'Leary camp who might not want to support Bernier now. Right. I just think it's so laughable that a guy that wasn't even always living in Canada was even in the running in the first place. Does this speak to the state of the Conservative Party? Or was he just kind of that popular because of the TV show and his high profile that he actually stood a chance? 
Well, we had Ignatieff, right? Who was also someone who didn't live here. So I don't think it's just a conservative. But Ignatieff had run for the party leadership before, lost, right. took a job in the States, and then came back to run the party. Like he was someone who was a lifelong liberal, at right. least. O'Leary has flirted with like running for the liberals before, and then he decided in like Trudeau, and all of a sudden he's a conservative, even though he didn't really have that many super conservative platform right. points. So I guess this is what you get when you have a 14 person race at one point. Now we're down to what, 13 or 12. But in some, Kevin O'Leary leaving the race is a thing and perhaps a thing that shows how dogged reporting can still make a difference because he was discredited quite a bit by people pointing out when he wasn't here or his lack of French, things of that nature. I also think that regardless of whether he was going to stay in the race or not, his job would remain the same, whether he was the leader or whether he goes back on TV. His function is to yell at poor people with dreams and destroy those dreams. So whether he was in a conservative leadership chair or yelling at poor people with dreams on TV, congrats, Kevin O'Leary. You have your job still. So this is a thing. So our next thing that may or may not be a thing, Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan has overstated his role in a key mission in Afghanistan called Operation Medusa. Basically, he was speaking in India, said he called himself the architect of this plan. We know he was actually involved in the intelligence gathering of this mission, but wasn't the quote unquote architect. He's already apologized. There's the usual partisan calls for him to resign. But he's a really decorated war hero. So is this a thing? Why do people lie in the age of the internet? Like, I really just don't get it. You know we know how to find out things, Doesn't hurt right? Donald Trump. I know, but... I think it is a thing, and I think this is a good thing for anyone in the public eye or thinking about getting into the public eye or for those young listeners that want jobs similar to this. Someone's always listening. Just assume that in today's smartphone age... Someone's always taking a selfie. Someone's always streaming to Snapchat. Someone's always, always going to be behind you with some sort of recordable device. It's a thing and he shouldn't have lied. It's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a really bad look. Definitely a thing. Definitely a thing. Stephen Lee, a listener in Brampton, Ontario, shared a thing with us and wants to know if it's a thing. So several years after discovering he was of Indigenous heritage and learning about his Mi'kmaq history... Ottawa has decided to revoke his and thousands of others' status. It's a thing. It's definitely a thing. It seems like a really big thing. It's a big thing. It's, it's as a status Indian myself, it's even such a big thing that <laughs> it's uncomfortable to talk about because, yeah, it's a really contentious issue in Indian country. It's an important issue politically in Canada in terms of a pathway forward around status and, you know, in air quotes, reconciliation. Yeah, this is going to be happening uh, all across this country as more and more people start to look at the reclamation of land and, and culture and, and everything else through this reconciliation project. So it is a thing. So I have uh, a friend that I play ultimate with and her dad filled out identical applications for himself for her brother and for her and her identical twin sister, same household, grew up together, still live, with, live within like 
you know, half an hour of each other. And one twin was accepted and one twin was rejected. The difference in their scores were 13 and 6. So this is what I find fascinating about this, because it is definitely a thing is like, how do these scores happen? Is this the right way to do this? I think that's a big existential question as well. And I just want to know more about this. Like, I want to do a whole episode one day about Indian status and its history and the arbitrary nature of who seems to get it and who doesn't. Well, I mean, there's something clearly going on in the training of whoever's doing this. If the exact same application gets 13 points, 11 points and six points from three different people, like you, it has to be more standardization or at least like what guidelines are they following that they could get such radically different results. And I think this really points to a thing that got, that goes over Canadians' heads so often is that Indian Affairs or the Bureau of Indigenous Reconciliation <laughs> and Happiness and a Pathway Forward, whatever the fuck they've renamed it to, to this year, has a over a 5,000-person bureaucracy. And so how those test scores can come back so radically different is... You know, these bureaucrats have to pass it around and and uh, everyone's got a little piece of the work that they have to do on their desk. And this is why the budget for running the lives of Indians in this country is so high. The bureaucracy is a nightmare and it doesn't work. And I will say kind of as a shot to many Canadians that don't understand this, this is not our system. This is a nightmare that, yes, people that are trying to reconnect with their community live through, but also those of us that do have status and know where we come from and all the rest. It's just a bureaucratic nightmare. And uh, I really, really love the the fact that people are working diligently to figure out how to get out from under the, the bureaucracy that controls Indians' lives in this country. I think in the interest of the government, when they are revoking status or granting status, simply the the reason to revoke status or to look at those those ban lists are, it costs a lot of money. The more status Indians you have, the more rights people have under those uh, those very specific rights under the Royal Proclamation and what is agreed upon in this country as the original deal of settling this country. So I think that on a, on a case-by-case basis, I can't really speak to, you know, why an individual's rights get uh, stri- stripped or revoked, but our collective rights are under attack in this country as well. Modern day treaty processes and otherwise are really at the core trying to take away these rights uh, forever because they are goddamn expensive to the crown. When people are coming back to their communities, you know, and they've they've survived things like the 60s scoop and are being uh, adopted out by their families because their parents were incapable of taking care of them at the time, many people return back and try to get their names back on those ban lists when they come back. And we're talking about really, if, if, if I want to be very crass about it, we're talking about people fighting over scraps. And a lot of times when you are an outsider and you come back into a closed community and people don't know you, there's a lot of skepticism there. So I guess on a personal level, I've had some relatives and people that have had a really difficult time with this process. And again, I'll just I'll just point my guns back at the bureaucracy and just say it's time to figure this out once and for all because it is a system that was meant to kill us and it didn't work and we still live under it and it's terrible. And it's a thing. And finally, we have one more thing that we have to talk about being a thing. Listener Dave Grant in Sudbury 
thank you, Dave, for sending this in. He asks if there are more and more Canadian artists being turned away from the U.S. because of the current administration's clampdown on the border south of us. And it's happening. It's happening at music festivals to artists. And is this a thing? Is this something that we're going to see more and more? Are they being more and more stringent on paperwork and uh, who they allow over the border to work? Uh, it happened last uh, last month at South by Southwest. Is this a thing? Is that border starting to uh, close its doors quietly behind the scenes? I think it's a thing because we're also hearing about it with people being asked if they've ever in their life smoked marijuana and that being enough to get people turned away at the border. And once you're turned away once, you are turned away forever. If you decide to not answer the question and turn away, that's also recorded. I mean, there, I think there's a lot of concerns right now about crossing the American border and questions about what it will mean. And then now with this bill to change, we already talked about this. We did a whole segment about the bill to change the way we cross the border and do a lot more pre-clearance here and the, the lack of rights we have in those situations. I, I'm, I'm going to wonder out loud here, kind of for the first time, I wonder who's being turned away, you know, and if, if, if this is sort of a, a very deliberate process of keeping certain types of people out of the United States. And I'm not sure, I mean, this is all kind of off the top of the dome here, but I'd be interested to learn more about that too. And maybe we can follow up with that because I think that's an interesting question, especially for young Canadians that will be using marijuana, crossing over the border. And I I just wonder about that double standard. I, I can tell you, I get harassed and hounded every time I show my status card at the U.S. border. They pull me in and search the car and my kids have gotten used to it. They they uh, bring a book with them every time we have to cross. Yeah, it seems like they're getting more strict about the kind of visa you have. So I know a lot of people go over on a B-1 visa, which is a visitor visa, which isn't supposed to allow you to work as compared to the P-1 visa, which is permits you to work in the States. And so I think previously they used to kind of just let that slide, especially if you weren't, um, if you're going to play for free or you're not making any money, but now they're cracking down a little bit more. But I mean, I'm going to the States in three weeks. I'm concerned as to whether or not I'm going to get across. So it's a thing. All right. Well, we're all out of things. And it's so far just like last week. Everything was a thing. I want to challenge the Canada Loan Commons readers. Find us a thing that's not actually a thing. And if you want to send us that thing that you think might actually be a thing that's not a thing, you can reach us at commons at canadalandshow.com. Now we just want to take a second to thank our exclusive sponsor, Wealthsimple. You can check them out at wealthsimple.com. It's tax season and taxes were due yesterday for filing. So if you have not done that, I suggest you run to your computer, not walk. Um, But if you're one of the lucky few who is getting a tax refund... Uh, you might want to consider investing that refund in a Wealthsimple account. I'm sitting here at wealthsimple.com forward slash commons. I'm going to click the get started button. And from there, it takes me through the process. I'm going to start my plan. I live in Canada. I click next. Look at the magic. I want to buy a house. I want to retire, save for my kids' education, save long term, or have a wedding fund. I'm not getting married. I'm not retiring. I have kids. I don't even understand what I'm doing next week, never mind the long term, and I already pay a mortgage, children's education. Look how easy this is. Yes, I have debt. Bang. I'm investing my tax return right now as we speak. Can you believe this? 
So why would I want to choose Wealthsimple to put my tax return if I were getting one, which I'm not and I'm sad about, uh, into to invest? Well, if you put it into a savings account, you're going to get a low interest rate, even if you choose a high interest savings account. You're looking at maybe like 2% to 3%. It's not being invested anywhere. It's not growing. It's kind of just sitting there like a lump like a sad lump. Whereas if you put in a well simple account, you can choose your level of risk, you can choose what kinds of things you want to invest in, and you have a much higher likelihood of having something actually grow. Speaking of sad lumps, I've never invested before and I'm sitting here having told them what my income is and what my debts are and they're telling me that I should apply for a balanced portfolio. Now I can choose what type of items are gonna be in my portfolio and whether I really wanna play the game or kinda of take it in the long, slow burn. Your first $10,000 is managed for free for the first two years when you go to wealthsimple.com forward slash commons. Go there today, check it out. You can download the app for your iPhone or your Android device. It's free, it's simple and it creates a future for you and your family. Wellsimple.com forward slash commons. Hey everybody. So when we relaunched commons back in February, the idea was to turn it into more of a panel style political show like they do on network TV, just without the three boring white guys in suits that seem to populate every single one of those shows. But we've had some listener feedback and we're responding. A number of you wrote in to say that while you like the new format, you missed the feature interviews that Commons used to do. Interviews with politicians and policymakers, activists and advocates. So we're going to bring those back. Each episode of Commons will feature an in-depth interview with someone in the news and we'll frame it from the perspective of the political outsider like the three of us are. This week, Commons' own Ashley Chinati speaks with Kat Lantain. Lantain is a Toronto-based playwright who became an accidental advocate for blood safety in Canada. Younger Commons listeners may not remember this, but in the early 90s it emerged that the organizations responsible for getting donated blood into hospitals were using inadequate screening processes. The end result was that thousands of Canadians were inadvertently infected with HIV and hepatitis C. In 1993, the Creever Commission was established, and by 1997, the Canadian Red Cross was no longer in the business of acquiring donated blood. That role fell to the newly created Canadian Blood Services and HEMA Quebec. Twenty years on, however, some provinces and even our federal government want to relax the regulations on who can trade in blood products and potentially pave the way for for-profit companies to buy plasma from Canadians and ship it out of country. This is Ashley's interview with one woman who, in her own words, got mad, got active, and got results. We do not have any evidence at the present time in Canada that AIDS has been transmitted unequivocally by a blood product. Starting tomorrow, every drop of blood collected by the Red Cross in Canada will be tested for AIDS. Five Canadians so far have caught the disease through blood transfusions, and the Red Cross wants to make sure that no one else gets infected. Some Canadians who have the AIDS virus are going to get some help from the federal government. 
Ottawa announced today it will be giving out a total of $150 million to people who got AIDS from blood transfusions or blood products in the early 1980s. Good evening. The victims of Canada's tainted blood tragedy will have their day in court. Tonight, Ottawa and the provinces have announced a full-scale judicial inquiry into the country's blood supply in the early 1980s. Justice Horace Creever called it a national public health disaster caused by a systematic failure and mistakes that victims paid for with their lives, with their futures, with their dreams. After a five-year investigation, the RCMP has laid criminal charges, including charges against the Canadian Red Cross and several doctors who were highly placed in Canada's blood distribution system. My name is Catlan Tang. I'm the executive director of bloodwatch.org and all my information's on the site there. This is a long story because it's been a big part of your life for a long time. But can you give me the quick version of how you got into this issue? Well, it was an accident. I'm an accidental advocate. I had written a play called Tainted that premiered in Toronto in 2013, and it was about the tainted blood crisis. And during that time, the private blood clinics had uh, set up beside a homeless shelter on Spadina. So it was a hot button issue of why they were there. And I had this amazing opportunity to use this piece of art as a platform to discuss the issue and also to protest the issue at the same time. And I was in a very unique position because I had just completed a three-year research project across the country interviewing tainted blood survivors, the doctors, the lawyers, you know, hematologists, scientists, people involved in the tainted blood crisis and the Creever inquiry. And I was able to loop them all together again after they hadn't sort of spoken for about you know 10 or 15 years at that time. And we banded together and advocated for Queen's Park here in Ontario to implement a ban. And it was successful. So the Creever inquiry was, of course, the result after the tainted blood scandal of the 80s and early 90s, where people from getting blood transfusions contracted hepatitis C, HIV, AIDS and other blood borne diseases. Why that issue? Like what tapped you into that specific issue? The issue about the tainted blood crisis is, was always a personal one for me. My uncle died of AIDS in 2001. He was gay. He didn't contract AIDS from uh, tainted blood, but he was blamed for it because he was a gay man. And a very dear family friend of ours contracted HIV from her husband, who was a hemophiliac, my godmother's sister. And so it was part of our family story. And it had a huge impact on me as a teenager. And it was a story I had been trying to tell for a very long time. And I tried to make a film. You know, I couldn't get a film made in Canada. So I found that uh, play was the perfect platform for it. And that was my personal draw to it. Since then, of course, I have relationships all across the country now with tainted blood survivors and their family members. And as the executive director of bloodwatch.org, the organization I co-founded, it is exceptionally, incredibly, incredibly important to me that those people have a representation out there in the country because as patients or people who've lost family members or people who are surviving, you know, still with HIV or hepatitis C, they're quite worn out from the fight. And so they need somebody out there fighting their corner who refuses to back down. What happened was after we had that law passed in Ontario banning these blood brokers, which is in contravention to the Creever inquiry, 
a blood broker is different than Canadian Blood Services because they're literally just a middleman collector. So what they do is they just source the material and then they broker it on the international market to pharmaceutical companies to sell it at a profit. And then those pharmaceutical companies can make plasma-based medications and then they try to sell those plasma-based medications around the world. The huge difference is Canadian Blood Services, as a public blood operator, provides blood and plasma for us that we fund as taxpayers, and they also have oversight to the system. So one of the biggest problems with the blood brokers in our country is that they actually are a competitor, right, to our national blood collector who's trying to ensure that we're getting blood and plasma for domestic use. And so they're extremely problematic, and they've created problems in Germany and Austria as well. So the biggest problem right now is the impact on the voluntary system. So that's another huge problem is that they we have proof from Europe, because it's only allowed in four countries in the world, right? It's new in Europe, that they discovered that when private plasma brokers came in, they created competition for the public blood yeah, operator, course, right? Yeah. And when they folded, because they have to make money, right? So mm-hmm. some of these storefronts don't work. And the German Red Cross, in one particular case, went in to take over the clinic. They could only get one out of six donors back through the door because everybody wanted their 25 euros. So you burn your voluntary donor base. Once you culture somebody to be paid, it's very difficult to get them back into the system. And that is massive because Mm -hmm. there's so many issues under this about what it means, what the integrity of the blood system means. It means taking care of our donors, you know what I mean? Making sure they're integrated into the whole national system, making sure they're integrated into our healthcare system, mobilizing donors, right? So a really complex issue on how you manage a blood system gets, dis- what they try to do is distill it to this argument of, well, is it okay or not okay to pay people? And that's a complete bullshit argument because that is not what we're arguing about. I mean, that itself, of course, we argue against. There's a whole bunch of issues in the infection rates are higher when you pay people. You know, they they tend to lie. It's a private company. It's a corporation. We have no access to those donor records. You know, neither does Canadian Blood Services. But this really is an issue about the safety of the voluntary blood system and the security of supply and how you manage it. You give that up to corporations, you get trade agreements in place. And so for a long time after the tainted blood scandal and the Creever inquiry in Canada, this issue was sort of dormant. There was a lot of regulation. If there was any controversy in the blood system, it was opening it up to people who'd been banned because of their their sexuality or even potentially where they were born. And so then in your play comes out in 2013, then all of a sudden, what happens? So all of a sudden, it was a hugely controversial issue because people had forgotten why it was so important to have Canadian blood services and what we recognize that the decisions that were being made uh, or for people that were supporting private plasma were to support a corporation and their profits. It actually wasn't being made to get patients more plasma or collect more. It was literally just a financial decision. It was hugely controversial. I mean, we raged on. It was it was brutal here. The former health minister, Deb Matthews, told the clinic to shut down. They wouldn't shut down. She had to send the police in to raid their clinics. So this all started in Ontario. It all started in Ontario. And how soon zero. after your play came out? Your play. So give me that timeline. Your play yeah. comes out. So the play comes out. We are fighting the issue in the public. We had a huge amount of press here in Toronto with the play. We were on the morning news. We advocated with tainted blood survivors. 
And we were able to get the law passed at Queen's Park the following year in 2014. We actually toured my play that fall all around the province to gain support for the province. And it was a unanimous vote. So every single MPP at Queen's Park voted to pass that law to ban these blood brokers and protect the blood system in Ontario. I was told by so so many people that I would never get consensus at Queen's Park because everybody was fighting and it was very, very It was a minority volatile. government. You know what I mean? It was like, and I just said, watch me. There's no way that any of those MPPs as Canadian citizens are going to turn their back on a fellow patient, you know, on a f- patients or on this massive part of our Canadian history where we buried 8,000 Canadians. So many people died because of tainted blood in this country. And we've spent literally billions of dollars in giving compensation to those infected. And that inquiry of Justice Creevers does not stale date. There is nothing in his inquiry that stale dates today. Not a thing. So how did Blood Watch come of this as a formal organization? Like you said, you're an accidental activist. You wrote this play. All of a sudden, you become the spokesperson for this issue. And then it becomes a formalized thing and part of your life. Well, at the end of having that law passed, I was exhausted like I'd never been exhausted before. They say advocacy usually has a two-year you know, two limit. And I gained 20 pounds. It was also, I remember having the celebratory dinner when we had the law passed. And it was one of the saddest meals I've ever had. And it was so sad because the people there that were the uh, tainted blood survivors, you know, you're raising a glass to all of these people that have you've lost and you had the law passed, but they should have never had to fight for it. So it was it was a hard one because, of course, some of these women, you know, at that dinner party, they buried their husbands, men who were lawyers during that time, co-infected hemophiliacs who fought very hard throughout the Creever inquiry. So it was kind of a sad victory, if, if that makes any sense. And then we talked a little bit about forming Blood Watch, but we were all really burnt out. And we thought, clearly, something like that needs to exist. You need a watchdog and a whistleblower, right, on the blood system if anything happens, but we'll get to it when the time comes. That was in January of 2015. Then at the end of 2015, CBC breaks the story that those blood brokers went and set up in Saskatoon. It was the first decision Jane Philpott made as a federal health minister in Canada. So as soon as Justin Trudeau's government got in, the clinics got licensed. And the Saskatchewan government welcomed them in. All of those negotiations and discussions happened behind closed doors. Nobody was informed, and it was all in secret. And I remember seeing the story because it was just after Christmas, and I was in Kelowna with sitting there having dinner with my husband and my mother-in-law. And I sat up in bed that night, and he looked at me, and he just said, you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to drop everything and get into the ring. And we made the decision together. So I worked for six months for free because we had to raise money eventually for Blood Watch. We formed Blood Watch and I got into the ring. I, the realization that politics is a breeding ground for cowards just washed over me like never before because it's true. Rarely are there MLAs and MPs that will just com- consistently stand up for something that is right, something that is just. 
And that's really scary because when it comes to, you know, the blood system, that was our history. That shouldn't be our history now because everybody should know better. So that uh, was the impetus. And then we discovered that Minister Philpot, to everyone's dismay, totally backed the idea of private blood brokers in Canada and that they were going to move forward with licensing this company in every province, you know, that they could get them in. So it became this massive battle on a federal level, but also on a provincial level. And ever since, I haven't been able to leave the ring. It's been a knockdown street fight with Big Pharma at our heels who try to bully you. I mean, they, you know, they tried to bully us. They forwarded a libel and defamation threat letter that they had written to uh, the Council of Canadians as an intimidation tactic. They sent it to everybody, including Canadian Blood Services and CBC journalists, journalists at the National Posts. I went on the radio the next day and said I would burn it and burn anything they sent because we get to challenge our government in Canada. We get to speak out. And the pharmaceutical industry doesn't get to tell us how we write our public policy. I think a lot of people stay out of politics because they don't feel like there's a way in if you're not an established player. And here you are in a span of four years, went from being a playwright talking about a topical issue to the head of an organization that's affecting change in this country. What advice would you have for someone who has an issue that they're passionate about and they want to start rattling cages and start getting the ears of politicians? Because I think a lot of people feel like it's not something that they can do. Everybody can do it for sure. I think that the best thing to do first is to reach out to an advocate that you admire. I mean, I've had so many mentors. They were natural mentors around me because I was surrounded by all these veteran blood advocates. So I was in a pretty great position to do that first and to make sure they understand that in our country, we do have a democratic process and that it is the job of our members of parliament and our MLAs provincially to be the member of the public that is putting their hand up in the room on our behalf. It is not their job to be shills for the pharmaceutical industry or any other, you know, private industry. That is not their job. They might have to negotiate, you know, with those industries, but their job is to represent us full stop. That means us, not their party. And so I think because right now we're in hyper-partisan politics, especially on the federal level, they need to push those values. So I would say that if you have an issue and you believe in it and you know it's right and you have integrity and ethics that you refuse to abandon, you will be able to win. But it's a long game. So the game is one of consistent effort and they will try to exhaust you, right? They will try to exhaust you because everybody's fighting for an issue. And that is the thing that you just have to keep on it and never give up. Great. Thank you. That was phenomenal. All right. Election season. Woo. So fun. Um, so we have a provincial election happening in B.C., in the final phases of the home stretch. We've got one that's about to start on the other side of the country in Nova Scotia. Yes, and in BC, we've got the incumbent premier, Christy Clark. She's trying to recover after some scandals have hit her party. We had the cash for access scandal that we discussed on a previous show. Um, We've got a report that's showing that two ministries, including her own office, were deleting emails regarding freedom of information requests. 
And then we have her party's unfounded accusations that the provincial NDPs are trying to hack the liberal websites. And then this week, this happened. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Christy. Hi. Linda, nice to meet you. Never vote for you because you don't have to. Yeah. That's why we live in a democracy. Yeah. Thank goodness. Hopefully, how are you? Nice to see you. So to give you some context, Christy Clark stopped at a North Vancouver grocery store, you know, thinking she was just going to say hi to the people in the community. And she encountered a voter, Linda Higgins, I think she garnered a hashtag of her own this week, um, who wanted to make to her premiere, as you heard, didn't go so well. The CBC captured this encounter, went viral on social media, getting the I am Linda hashtag on Twitter. And... Clark did not handle the fallout from this very well. First, she claimed that Higgins said she'd never voted liberal in her life and never would, which clearly is not captured anywhere on the videotape. Her team then claimed that it was that she was an NDP plant, something that both Higgins and BC NDP candidate flatly deny. I think that Higgins had a picture with this candidate on her Facebook profile. It's like, how dare you take a picture with selfie with a politician? How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> British Columbians are headed to the polls in a week. Play out. I love the I am Linda thing <laughs> so much. It feels like an episode of Veep come to life. Like you just expect like this, like this dismissive, like, well, then don't vote for me. Christ. Yeah. I'm like moving on. <laughs> like That's what you could like see going across her face. What I find interesting is that even a month ago, it really did look like the liberals were going to pick up another government. The polls were a little bit further apart. They've really tightened in recent weeks. And I think it's a combination of factors that are embodied in Clark's body language in that video. And it's the idea of liberal entitlement that I really think has eaten into their support in British Columbia. And this is not your typical liberal party. Like they just had a balanced budget with a decent surplus and they handed out like tax credits and stuff, right? And in Ontario, a more left-leaning liberal party will spend money on pharmacare and basic income as we've been talking about. Like the the BC liberals are, are definitely right of the federal... And most other provincial parties, they don't have an affiliation there. And they they really did seem poised to keep going with that steam. And something shifted during this campaign. It's like the, the perfect example of campaigns mattering, but also a government that's gotten too big for its britches, like hubris bringing it yeah. down. There's a cartoon, a, an editorial cartoon that the NDP have been using a lot that really seems to also embody everything that's wrong with the BC Liberals right now, where it was a someone in first class, they used the whole United angst to do this and it was like you only get comfortable access to government if you can pay like first class and they've had a fundraising scandal out there where you can donate up to a million dollars we've talked about that on this show like it's this really could be it for the bc liberals and i feel like that grocery store encounter is the explanation as to why it might turn into one of those mythological campaign moments like you had an option sir when obviously there's more parts moving parts to it right. than that but it's just it's emblematic i want to go back to and and uh, circle around and uh, really look at how quick you two were to fufu the secret ndp program of planting former nurses in <laughs> stores around the country <laughs> To corner politicians, should they ever show up, you two are creating a a conspiracy by not acknowledging this secret NDP program that clearly is meant to derail Christy Clark's chances at returning as premier. They went so 
hard on this because of the hashtag. And this is a fascinating thing where social media can actually influence elections. I am Linda trended, I believe, for almost three and a half days, which takes up a lot of space on Twitter to be trending like that. And the Liberal Party in BC had to go hard on this to really put Christy Clark back into frame and and make sure that she was well taken care of after this happened. Because I think people in BC are starting to see that Christy Clark's government is not necessarily good for the province. It's going to be interesting next week to see where voters uh, turn because, you know, the pipeline questions, some of the things that she's not been able to accomplish uh, vis-a-vis the the pipeline question through BC. These are interesting times in BC. On the other side of the country, we've got an embattled provincial liberal government limping out of the starting gate. So their their launch has not been... That's a great. Also, story. <laughs> so in Nova Scotia, we've got the Stephen McNeil government, which tabled a budget last week, and that was essentially seen as an election platform. Speculation was rife all week as to whether or not McNeil was going to call the election. Will he? Won't he? And then the date was announced. However, it wasn't through your usual means of a press conference or maybe a press release or maybe the actual premier talking. Instead, it was through liberal promotional material that was accidentally uploaded to their website and through YouTube. And it was not spell-checked first. (laughs) (laughs) So somebody got fired before the campaign even started. eh? And so that video had the May 30th date on it, which was before the premier had visited the lieutenant governor to actually officially call the election, which always gets people up in arms and railing about it. You're you're not supposed to campaign outside of a campaign period, which is sort of what that is. Like, there actually are some possible rules that were broken, mistakenly or not. Bad start for their electoral machine for the Nova Scotia Liberals. However, they did just deliver a balanced budget. And some of the polling shows them in pretty solid space right out of the gate, um, even if they've had some other issues. I can't believe people got so mad about this. I thought East Coasters were lighthearted and uh, full of laughs kind of people out there. And a simple spelling mistake cannot bring down a liberal government on the East Coast, can it? I mean, let's relax. Let's have a laugh. Let's have a pint kiss a fish. I don't know. It is interesting times in this country. We went through this liberal wave across Canada. And, you know, before that, Jack Layton caught caught the hearts, the imaginations of many. People were sick and tired of Stephen Harper. This red liberal wave comes and takes over the country. And now where we thought maybe there were future provincial governments that were going to be around for a long, long time. Are we starting to see the shine fall off the Liberal government in these provincial elections? I think the Nova Scotia one will be an interesting test for how the Liberal brand is doing because the BC Liberals aren't really, as I already said, part of the Liberal fold. Like they aren't in the same category as like Trudeau, Wynne, McNeil. Like they are, that's the Liberal Party of Canada. The BC Liberal Party is a little separate. I think this this will be an interesting measure of support out there. But people do vote differently provincially from federally. You sometimes see a bit of a response to how a federal party is doing. But I also think that's it's kind of one of those myths in Canadian politics that people like to to punish a provincial party for the federal party's sins if they don't like what's going on. People tend to say that a lot, but if you actually drill down in the data, the numbers don't back it up. And you'll have really established pundits like go on like, no, they always do this. But if you actually 
like go year by year through elections. That's very rarely the case. One thing that is interesting about Nova Scotia, though, is the Liberals had a pretty big majority going into this. It's a 51 seat legislature and they had 36 of them. The Tories had 10. The NDP had a few and there were a couple independents in an empty seat. So that's a good majority going out of an election. That's our show for this week. I'm Ashley Chinati. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Chinati. That's Ashley with an L-E-Y, C-S-A-N-A-D-Y. I'm Hadia Rodrique. Follow me at D Rodrique. That's R-O-D-E-R-I-Q-U-E. And I'm Ryan McMahon. Follow me on Twitter at RM Comedy. That's at RM Comedy. <laughs> Follow Canada Land Commons on Twitter at CanadaLandCMNS and check out our website at CanadaLandShow.com slash commons and you can email us at commons at CanadaLandShow.com. Our Patreon page is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. The producer of Commons is Russell Gregg and our music is produced by Nathan Burley. And thanks again to Commons' exclusive sponsor, Wealth Simple. Get your first $10,000 managed for free for two years at wealthsimple.com slash commons. If you like what we do, please support us. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.